The Tom Woods Show, episode 1177. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, learn the history and economics they kept from you over at libertyclassroom.com, my flagship site. Learn from me and from other folks you can trust all the stuff they left out. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com and grab yourself a coupon at libertyclassroom.com slash coupons. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. When Donald Trump recently raised the possibility of pardoning Martha Stewart, I thought that was an opportune moment for an episode on the Martha Stewart case. But as interesting as that was, I also want to talk about insider trading more generally. Should it be considered a crime or not? And what kind of insight can Austrian economics and libertarianism bring to bear on that subject? Well, joining us to talk about this is somebody who wrote extensively on the topic at the time, and that is our old friend Bill Anderson. William L. Anderson is a professor of economics at Frostburg State University in Maryland, and I do want to tell you that it's not by any means unlistenable. The audio is fine for this episode, but it's not quite where I might want it in some spots. You'll be able to understand every word that's said. That's not it. But here and there, you know, little little issues. But when you hear where Bill is broadcasting from, you will overlook any of those little glitches because it's a miracle he's broadcasting at all. <laughs> so that's what I'll say. And now I'll turn things over to uh, Bill Anderson, whom I'm delighted to welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Now, speaking of be here, I would like you to share with the audience, only because you've told me it's all right for me to ask, where it is you are broadcasting from, so to speak. I am broadcasting from a uh, a hospital room, and I was having a, a series of what we would call mini strokes this week. You know, where you would uh, part of my face, you know, it's the right part was going numb, and I was having a lot of uh, tingling and stuff, and so uh, getting dizzy. And I do have a history of stroke in the family, so we came down to the hospital, and and I've been poked and prodded, and and. Uh, had dye shot up up in me and all that, and so and uh, I'm going to be uh, released uh, from this prison sometime today. We hope, uh, and with blood thinner, and I'll be just having to do blood thinner for the rest of my life because they can't go after the artery that is just causing this. So we're just going to go with the blood thinner. So. You have a series of mini strokes. You wind up in the hospital. You think, but I am scheduled to be on that Woods program. You better believe it. No, I mean, I you know, I mean, I would have to be in a body bag not to be doing this. So. All right. Well, that's we, we all appreciate it, Bill, and we all. Well, you know. you have a, Tom, you have a loyal following. Uh, uh, I've uh, don't don't forget that uh, I did. Uh, I have had my kids read uh, read some of your books, most of my students and stuff like that. So I'm I'm a loyal follower, and I do what's necessary. And well, this is a do <laughs> this is a do what's necessary moment. Well, we all appreciate it, and we all send you our good wishes for your good health. Now, let's talk about um, Martha Stewart in particular, and then we'll talk about insider trading more generally. I've got a lot of young people who won't remember the Martha Stewart case, so I guess we'd like to start with the background. But for right now, where is Martha Stewart? What kind of sentence did she wind up getting? 
she got a five, she ended up serving about five and a half months over at the Alderson prison in West, West Virginia, uh, that they, they, uh, call it camp cupcake. But, uh, I've, I've had another friend who was incarcerated there on some really specious charges. And, uh, you know, no, no prison is a, uh, is a country club, no matter what they tell you, but she, she served about five and a half months there. Uh, and she is, uh, you know, back in business. I mean, people like Martha Stewart don't really allow even this kind of stuff to ruin their lives. Um, well, I was just wondering if she was back in public life because I, yeah, I, I'm so out of it, I wouldn't have even noticed one way or the other. Yeah, she is. She's back in public life. Uh, not, you know, it's a little bit different, but she's definitely been been with you know in public life uh, i don't follow her as much as i i used to you know back in the days when they had all the martha stewart collection and all that but i think she's still uh she's still quite active and you know i think once an entrepreneur always an entrepreneur well let's talk then about what it was that got her in trouble and i don't know if it was actually insider trading or whether it was lying to congress well, actually, it was, it was neither. Uh, what had happened was that a CEO, it was a, of a company called Mclone. Mclone was about to have a, uh, a drug called Herbitux turned down by the Food and Drug Administration. And so when that happened, what would happen, when it was about to happen, the stock price would go down. Well, the CEO unloaded a bunch of his own stock and her broker said, Hey, uh, and, uh, and all of a sudden I just can't really, th- I can't think of it. Wexall, Sam, Sam Wexall. Um, he says, Hey, Wexall is selling some stock. You may want to find out what's going on. And so she tried to contact him and couldn't. And then they decide, well, we better go ahead and sell. So she sold $4,000 of M stock, uh, and uh, and then the, the word came out, the uh, stock price went down. The CEO ended up going to jail for insider trading. And ironically, the company ended up, uh, Mclomes came back up again. So who whoever bought the shares that Martha Stewart sold them ended up making money. So, <laughs> so I mean, you know, it was a, kind of a happy ending for that. But, but the word got out. And so what what ultimately happened, was that the the FBI decided to bleed her, and what what they were doing? Um, and this is this is was a really insidious thing. What happened? Uh, something that even today, you know, several years later, still really makes me upset. But um, they started leaking stuff about their investigation, which is illegal, highly illegal, and they started leaking it. And the purpose was to knock down the price of Martha Stewart Living, stock price. And so her company was taking hit after hit, uh, and the FBI was illegally knocking, you know, tossing out this, this uh, grand jury information. And um, so anyway, she finally agreed to meet with the FBI. Now, you have to understand that an FBI interview is like none other. Nobody takes notes. Uh, you, Even if your attorney's present, they can't say anything. You can't take notes. Nothing is recorded. Nothing is memorialized. It's all about the agent's memory. So 
Tom, you could go in there at age and serial number or whatever, and they could come out and they could could allege that you said this and that, and there wouldn't be a thing to do about it because everybody knows the FBI always tells the truth. And, uh, and so she had that interview with them, and you know, and and they charged her with lying to the FBI, and also she had thought about, you know, had had discussed not telling the truth on the, uh, or at least kind of fudging some of the information on, on I think, it, some sort of certificate regarding the sale of the stock, but decided not to. But she also, just by, I guess, having, uttering this thought of maybe we ought to alter this or whatever, I forget what it was that she wanted to alter, that they charged her with that too. Now, there was another charge they brought that the judge dropped. And Tom, this tells you something about the mentality of James Comey. Understand, James Comey at the time was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which included Manhattan, which was going, you know, this is where Martha Stewart was put on trial. And they charged her with securities fraud. And why did they charge her with securities fraud? They said that she was giving false statements trying to artificially hold up the price of Martha Stewart Limit. Now understand that the FBI was breaking the law, leaking information to the press to depress the stock price of her company. And Stewart was saying publicly, I have not engaged in insider trading. They never charged her with insider trading. But they said that by saying she was not involved in, in, a, in a crime that the FBI never charged her with, that she would be, uh, that she was committing securities fraud. Now, this, uh, as they pointed out, was a rather novel uh, approach to securities fraud. And on some other show, if we ever talk about federal criminal law, you have a situation in which even though we do not have common law, criminal law is cannot fall into the area of common law in the United States. The Supreme Court, you know, nearly 200 years ago, ago ruled against that. But, but the feds essentially do that practice. They find ways, almost using common law logic, to turn any kind of activity into a crime. And that's, but that's for another, for another discussion. But but at any rate, that was the that was the heart of the of the whole thing. That Stewart, they they um, they started floating the stuff about insider trading, even though she actually had not engaged in true insider trading. She was just because her broker had information that somebody was selling stock. That is not. They, she knew nothing about the company, nothing you know about Urban Tux and being turned down by the FBA. She knew nothing about that. That's the sort of thing that would have fallen under the purvey of insider trading. All she knew was that Sam Wexall was dumping his stock, and maybe she should sell some of her stock too. And you know, and so the FBI manipulated that whole thing. Essentially, moved her into a trap into what we would call the perjury trap, and uh, except it's not even perjury because you're not under oath. That's another thing, too. Nobody's under oath uh, at these things. You're just being interviewed by the FBI, 
And if they decide that you've lied, and they, the only proof, of course, is the agent's memory. Uh, so uh, that essentially is the thing in the nutshell. At the trial, this is something you know, else. Number one, it's a highly prejudicial trial all the way through. And uh, the, the media, of course, did a lousy job of, of covering it. Uh, she, you know, I had an article on the Mises page uh, right after the verdict. I had titled it Wealthy Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. And one of the jurors, and he tended to be sort of a leader in the jury room and, was, and spoke to the press afterwards, um, his name was Chapel Hartridge. He lied on his jury application in hopes that he could get on the jury so he could, you know, vote to convict no matter what. So that's that should have been right there grounds for overturning the verdict. Of course, uh, this is the United States of America, and that kind of justice just doesn't go on in the federal courts. So at any rate, that's sort of some of that stuff in the nutshell, Tom. I hope you're still awake. hope you and the, and the listeners are still awake after all that. Well, try and explain exactly the distinction here between the laws being unjust and the application and enforcement of the laws being unjust. Do we have a case of both of those things going on here? Absolutely. Here's the thing about um, insider trading. And every, I, I want people to understand that federal criminal law, of criminal law in general, and especially federal criminal law, is statutory. Statutory means that you have a specific law that has been broken. All right. Insider trading laws are purposely vague that Congress, Congress wrote the law that the, uh, uh, the people behind it, um, not John Conyers, who was a, a really, he was an arrogant, he was an arrogant congressman from around Detroit. Uh, he was there for many, many years. Uh, he's not there now, but, uh, he was the one who authored the statute. He said outright that we are not going to define, clearly define insider trading because then people will use it as a roadmap. And um, John Dingle, John Dingle was his name. And, um, but in other words, so here's the thing, that the way that they purposely written the criminal statutes for insider trading is that you don't really know if you're involved in it or chances are you don't know if you're violating the law until afterwards whether or not the prosecutors decide to charge you. So uh, think about that. In other words, you have a law that's purposely vague. This isn't by accident. This is Congress being purposely vague. So the idea is that to put everybody on notice that uh, we may decide to charge you with a crime if we don't like you. And you know what? More and more, as I look around, I find there are a whole bunch of laws that actually can be used that way. This whole thing that's coming out of the EU, yeah. this GDPR regulation, a uh, series of regulations, mm-hmm. is so open-ended and imprecise about exactly what's expected of you that they could find an infraction really from anyone and – so therefore, everybody's held hostage because at any moment you could be brought up on charges on this. You think, oh, well, that's the EU. It doesn't affect me. They have ways of making your life miserable. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, and so it really is a way of being able to target anybody because it's impossible to comply with because the language is so vague. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane and ridiculous. It's times like this that I'm glad I'm just a small fry. But now, but let's let's talk about the subject of insider trading more generally and the economics of it, uh, yeah. and indeed the justice of it, because people will say that basically the argument against insider trading is an egalitarian argument that everybody should have more or less equal access to information, and if somebody has information that's not available to other people, and then acts on that in a way that turns out to be profitable, this is not fair because they. We have an inegalitarian access to information. Yes. Now there is a, a you know, a pl- that sounds plausible. I think to most people that I'm on the inside. I got some tip, and it made me some money. And and meanwhile, other people didn't have that tip, and they lost money. That just doesn't seem right to some people. Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting point because we always hear, well, the markets are rigged, the markets are unfair. We got to make the markets more fair, but. The truth of the matter is that in all, all sorts of things, all ways of life, that you and I have to depend on specific information, including anything that we would call insider information. I mean, uh, let's, let's redo the redu- uh, reduction added survey. And that is that what is, um, should we, if if we outlaw this sort of information hoarding or, or gaining in the sale of uh, stock securities or any type of of uh, you know financial security, there should we also uh, outlaw something else? Should we outlaw it, uh, regarding um, you know automobiles? Uh, if you know. Uh, if you know something about uh, about a car that somebody else doesn't, I mean, should your mechanic your mechanic knows more about your your car than than you do? Uh, should he be charged with insider trading? Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, and uh, and so on. The doctors know a whole lot more about that. I mean, you know, about things. Uh, you know, should should we try to say, well, you know, doctors shouldn't have so much information when you go into a hospital? You want people that are involved in this thing to have information. Now, one of the interesting points that Daniel Fischel wrote in his book, this is a book that came out a little over 20 years ago called Payback, and it was about the Wall Street prosecutions and Rudy Giuliani and, and Michael Milken and uh, the, uh, the sale of, and you know issuance of junk bonds. And one of the things he pointed out was that a lot of what you call the insider trading issues came about with mergers and acquisitions. And the reason that this even came about in the first place was because of the Williams Act passed in 1968. Senator Harrison Williams, who who later went to uh, prison on uh, the abscam charges uh, that came about in 1980. And you have to now have this... this, uh, uh, announcement. You th- there is a period of time which you can't move and all that, and it's basically to uh, keep companies from having to subject subject themselves to the discipline of the marketplace. You know by uh, you know having their you know they have the public sale of stock, but they want to restrict who can buy it. But and so by creating these artificial windows that. The uh, getting of insider information uh, became more important because what happens, Tom, in this in the securities markets? These markets 
uh, and their prices move very, very quickly. And so there isn't, you don't have the many kind of time lags with that. That's when, you know, you think about uh, the sale of commodities, sale of stocks and bonds, what that information is so moves so quickly uh, that that if you did not have these artificially built time lags in which all of a sudden it became advantageous for somebody to sneak around and try to find out something, um, then um, you know you probably wouldn't have had near this problem in the first place. Now. I will add this, that there is a difference when you have somebody who has what we call a fiduciary relationship or fiduciary duty with a firm. Let's say, for example, that you're an attorney that you work with a certain firm and you're right in the middle of a, um, of a negotiation okay, on, on a merger or acquisition. And you go out and you go buy a bunch of the stock uh, that you work on the merger because you know if this merger comes through, you're going to make a whole lot of money. Well, if you do that, you're sending, you know, th- these types of things, you are sending information through the back channel of pricing, but the kind of information that could very well scuttle the deal. Now, of course, if you did that, you scuttled the deal, uh, managed to get that, you would end up losing all that money, you know, from buying that stock. So, there's a certain bit of what we would call a uh, built-in um, moderation. But, Tom, here's, here's the problem that most of these cases, for example, the Martha Stewart case, did not involve a fiduciary duty. This was not like the, the uh, CEO of the company un- uh, unloading his stock, which, by the way, he should be allowed in, in a free society. He should be allowed to do that. Uh, you know, by unloading his stock, he's also, you know, weakening his own authority over the company. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, you know, I wonder, should there be any inside the trading laws at all? And the truth is, I don't think there should be. Uh, I don't believe that we should have what we call economic crimes. You know, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. They're the ones that invented economic crimes, I would prefer that we not follow the, uh, the lead in the old Soviet Union. Well, I've heard it argued by Austrian economists that leave aside all the emotion and, and the irrational knee-jerk response people have to insider trading and just look at what, what's actually going on. What, what might be what we might call the social function of insider trading? And what's basically happening is in light of whatever this information is that this person has – the current stock price is not really where it ought to be, and it's not really where it's going to wind up being. Yeah. By acting on this information, this person is accelerating the move of the stock price to where basically society needs it to be so that it's it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And so it's it, it pushes it to where it's – this is this is really an extension of, of really any kind of speculative behavior yes. that pushes the price where it you know, in some abstract sense ought to be. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. In other words, that they're mo- helping move the market. And like I said, in my, my example, the attorney who goes out and buys stock, if this attorney's actions end up scuttling the deal, why then he's definitely uh, harmed his, his firm. Now, here's the thing. Should that be a, a crime or should it be a, um, should it be a civil 
violation, in other words, or even handled inside the company itself. And a lot of times we criminalize activities that the very worst, the very worst should be in civil court, not criminal court. And uh, the this whole notion that we've got to criminalize all this stuff makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah, so at any rate, uh, that's the, the bottom line with it, unfortunately. But uh, we criminalize things that, frankly, should not be criminalized. Bill, l- let me read something Bob Murphy wrote, just a little passage from an article of his, just to give people um, an example with, with numbers. He says, let, let's suppose a Wall Street trader is at the bar and he overhears an executive on his cell phone discussing some good news for the Acme Corporation. Mm-hmm. So then this th- then this trader rushes to buy a 1,000 shares of the stock, which is currently selling for $10. So when the news becomes public, the stock jumps to $15 yeah. and the trader closes out his position for a gain of $5,000. So the question is, who is the supposed victim in all this? From whom was the $5,000 profit taken? And and here's where Bob really shines here because people think, well, somehow he's built the public. So Bob goes through every possible group or person who could have been bilked by this guy. He says, well, the people who sold the shares to the trader were, were trying to sell anyway and would have sold it to somebody else even if this guy hadn't entered the market. And in fact, by snatching the 1,000 shares at $10, the trader's demand may have held the price higher than it otherwise would have been. In other words, had the trader not entered the market, the people trying to sell a 1,000 shares may have had to settle for $9.75 per share rather than the 10 they actually received. Precisely. So the people dumping their stock either were not hurt or actually benefited. So then the people who held the stock beforehand and retained it were not directly affected either. Once the news became public, the stock went to its new level. Their wealth wasn't influenced by the inside trader. In fact, the only people who demanded demonstrably lost out were those who were trying to buy shares of the stock just when the trader did so before the news became public. By entering the market and acquiring a 1,000 shares temporarily, the trader either reduced the number of Acme shares other potential buyers acquired or he forced them to pay a higher price than they otherwise would have. When the news then hit and the share prices jumped, this meant that this select group made less total profit than they otherwise would have. Once we cast things in this light, it's not so obvious that our trader has committed a horrible deed. He didn't bilk the public. He merely used his superior knowledge to wrest some of the potential gains that otherwise would have accrued as dumb luck to a small group of other investors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's the thing that we, um, that there really needs to be harm. If you're going to bring criminal law into it, criminal law is always sort of a nuclear option. But if you're going to criminalize something, it, it, at the very least, we, you need to talk about something that causes real harm to people, not theoretical harm to somebody that you can't, you have to be able to identify who was harmed, how this person was harmed. Uh, for that matter, you know, we do that in, in civil court, right? We, you know, we want to, you know, you're supposed to come up with a, with a amounts of damages and things like that. We don't do that. And so I think that um, that's a real problem. That And I just, um, and I think we're just, I, I, it makes me very sad because in America, we want to criminalize stuff. And what happens? We get a lot of people thrown into prison. We get people killed who shouldn't be killed. We have lives ruined. And for what? You know, to make Americans feel like we have a more egalitarian society? How, is, you know, how does that happen? And, or that 
somehow somebody shouldn't be allowed to to get wealthy. You know, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart started out with nothing. She was a poor person. Uh, she built a company uh, by taking risks by. Uh, by moving forward, by seeing opportunities that other people did not see. Uh, and she made the world a better place for a lot of people. And for out of this, we're supposed to be resentful of her. Why? Why? You know, Tom, please explain to me why I should be resentful of Martha Stewart's success. How has she harmed me? She has not harmed me at all. She's made life better for people. Why in the world are we supposed to be resentful of her? I don't understand that. It's a question I ask myself a lot when I look at the way people respond to successful people. Yeah. And by the way, I I can't help pointing this out, but there are some nasty people in the libertarian world who hate to see other people succeed. You know, so it's oh yeah. Maybe it's just hardwired in us. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, it's uh you know, the old thing, remember the uh in Russia, they were you know this old Soviet Union that uh, on their last day of life that people ask for all sorts of things, uh, wonderful things uh, for them. And the Russian uh, asks that his uh, neighbor's barn burn down. You know, it's the idea that uh, uh, somebody being you know we, we resent that somebody has been well off and or made better off. And uh, that somehow is taking away from us. Well, if you sit down and think about it, it's not taking away from you uh, or from you know from any of us. There's there's a real difference between somebody causing harm and somebody just being better off. Um, and I think that unfortunately that uh, you know we've the, the egalitarian mindset being what it is. Uh, it's very difficult to get past it. You know, I, I looked at, the, and I wrote an article in the press coverage of Martha Stewart, and it was really awful. And it was basically built on resentment of a successful person. That was really a uh, thing. It's like, you know, my article on her wealthy beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, you know, I quoted from the New York Times editorial about it. The trial depicted a cozy world where insiders routinely use their wealth and connection the benefit from insider information. Well, there wasn't any of that going on. I mean, there wasn't, I mean, the trial never depicted anything like that. This was just the New York Times just shooting off, uh, saying ignorant things because uh, I guess that's what's expected of them. Bill, I appreciate your shedding light on all this for us, but I think I've decided that you now need to go rest. <laughs> I cannot believe I've I've let you do this. Oh, this is great. This, this is the great. most. This is the single most heroic thing any guest has ever done in almost twelve hundred episodes. Well, do remember this: Tom Woods called, and if I possibly can get to a, a Skype, <laughs> I will do it. You know how I am. Look, I at this point, I may have to call ahead to your family and make sure you're in good health before I have you on the show because <laughs> I don't trust you. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll link to – I know you've got a couple of articles from the old days from uh, about uh, Martha Stewart. So I'll link to that to those at tomwoods.com slash 1177 uh, that people can take a look at. Right. I thought about this because I heard some rumblings about Donald Trump looking to pardon Martha Stewart. Did you read about that? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I hope he does. I absolutely hope he does. And Tom, that verdict should have been overturned just by nothing and by juror misconduct. And that is the worst kind where juror lies to get on 
and then bragged about it afterward. And why wasn't he prosecuted? You know, why didn't James, you know, James Comey, you know, he's such a Boy Scout, right? And, and we can't have an, oh, we got to tell the truth. We got to stand up for the truth. And remember his whole thing, this was about lying. The Marcus Stewart case about lying. Well, guess what? You had a juror who openly lied, who gamed the system, but he, he came up with a verdict that James Comey liked. So therefore, uh, we won't prosecute him. Uh, but what if uh, what if she'd been acquitted, and then you found out that a juror lied to get on there to try to? Uh, do you think his uh, office would have uh, hesitated from going after this person? Not at all. So I think that there are, there are a lot of stuff going on. I, I thought it was a you know a ridiculous trial. She should never have been charged in the first place. And I hope Donald Trump does pardon uh, her. I really do. Well, I suppose time will tell, but Bill, um, we're all pulling for your full recovery and good health and that you do get released from prison today. And uh, <laughs> thanks a lot. We, we really appreciate it. All right, Tom, you take care. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for today. You know, the other day I saw Bob Murphy, my colleague and co-host on the Contra Krugman podcast, which I hope you're also listening to over at ContraKrugman.com. It's pretty obvious what that podcast is about just from the name. Bob on Facebook was pointing out that he was going on a long road trip with his son, and he was doing what he normally does. He was lining up a whole bunch of podcasts to listen to, and he said to his son, I hope you're prepared to listen to a lot of Tom Woods, and his son said, I hope you're prepared to listen to a lot of snoring. (laughs) That's just, that's great. I mean, his son is growing up to be just like Bob. Now, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, you can mull that over, but I liked that particular anecdote. I thought you might enjoy it also. All right, let's see. What do I need to tell you? We're giving away passage on the Contra Cruise to two lucky people. How do you get a free trip aboard the Contra Cruise? Well, if you are between the ages of 21 and 30, inclusive, you are eligible for this contest. Check it out at ContraKrugman.com slash Contest 2018. And we would love to see you on board. If you're not eligible then head over to ContraCruise.com and just book passage because we are going to have another amazing time with amazing people. You're going to make your life better. Let me just put it that way by joining us. So I very much hope to see you there, and I also hope you'll tune in tomorrow. See you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.